Hello, everyone. This is the first session in the series, Diversity in Medicine, Breaking Down Barriers, Insights, and Impact. Today, I will be talking to Dr. Narissa Haynes, cardiologist at the Yale School of Medicine, and how she has taken a personal initiative to raise awareness about increasing diversity in medicine. Well, thank you, Stephanie, for the invitation and uh, for inviting me to this very important um, initiative and, talk, and to talk about this important topic. Again, my name is Nurse Haynes. I'm a cardiologist, currently a uh, faculty at Yale. And I, throughout my career, have run into a couple of barriers due to, you know, my intersectionality of being a woman, being a Black woman um, in medicine uh, and STEM. So you know, a couple of things come to mind. So one is that, you know, as women, and especially women of color, we're just underrepresented in medicine, generally speaking. And so, you know, because there's such significant underrepresentation and we make up a small fraction of um, physicians, this underrepresentation can lead to feelings of isolation. I've definitely felt that before, where you're kind of like the only one in the room many times. Um, and sometimes it can feel like you don't belong because of that. So maybe a little bit of imposter syndrome. Um, so that's definitely something that I've had to deal with um, throughout my career. Um, of course, also you'll, I have encountered, and I think um, many other people of color, whoever is underrepresented, um, you know, may experience bias and stereotyping. I know I definitely did. Oftentimes people did not think I was the physician um, because of the way that I look. Um, and so I've experienced um, racial and gender biases, um, including stereotypes and microaggressions in the workplace. Um, and again, this can come from many different directions. It can come from peers, patients, and then also, you know, your superiors. Um, and, you know, that has been a challenge uh, from time to time as well. And related to the first point I made just about there being an underrepresentation of um, people of color and women um, in these fields, sometimes it can be difficult to find mentorship um, and find people who are kind of aligned uh, with your interests because our experiences um, are unique. Um, and so finding mentors that kind of understand that lived experience and the unique challenges that you may face um, as a person of color and for me as a Black woman um, at times have been challenging. Uh, but on the flip side, what I will say is that I've had mentors who were from my community and they were amazing. And I've had mentors who were not from my community and they were also amazing. Other barriers that I faced um, you know, I think this is a more general one, but work-life balance. So, you know, these professions and careers are very taxing um, and time-consuming. But I think as a woman, that's definitely a unique challenge for us because, you know, many women, not all women, have the desire to start a family, right? So you're trying to balance that desire with you know, staying on top of your work if you're in med school or just, you know, the, the clinical load when you're in residency or fellowship. Um, so that's an obstacle, too, and it can be very stressful uh, for women um, to try to balance all of those things. Um, yeah, so those are some of the, the barriers that I've encountered. 
Yeah, that was a really good point that you brought up about women having almost like a little bit of a harder work-life balance because many women want to start a family and they're, you know, expected to maintain the household and be a good mother, but also be excellent in their work um, as a physician or in the STEM field in general. So as a woman, have you, you know, faced any difficulties with that and how did you overcome it? Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. I think, you know, things have improved um, since I was in training. Um, you know, when I was a resident, the the work hours were just being adjusted down to like 80 hours. I'm kind of telling my age there. Um, you know, so I, I think things have improved. Um, maternity leave wasn't as robust for faculty then as it is now. Um, so I think there have been um, a lot of positive changes, actually also paternity leave too, which is good. But yeah, for me, it was a challenge to balance it all. Um, and I was actually listening to a podcast the other day and they were kind of saying, you know, for all of us, men and women, it's very challenging to multitask. So when you're in a very intense environment and intense training, it is hard to, you know, split your focus, right? And do multiple things at once. So I have colleagues who have, you know, managed to have a family during training, but it's definitely hard. It's not easy. And I think it's something that we don't talk about enough. Mm -hmm. I think ways in which I've seen other women, um, be able to do it is having a very robust support system, either their parents or extended family. Um, and then, you know, this kind of goes into another barrier, which is economic, right? Like being able to afford a nanny and daycare, right? Cause you're, you're a working mom. Um, you know, so I think if you have access to resources, like either human resources in terms of people who can help you or financial resources, it makes it a lot easier. Uh, but if you don't have those things, it's extremely hard. Um, and I think it's something that women have to think about um, that definitely adds a stress also. Resources that are available to women for those specific circumstances, I think would bring a lot more female physicians into the field. Um, if yeah. they're you know, worrying about maintaining a family while also maintaining their success in their job, one uh, kind of piggyback off of that, one thought I had that I don't think I've actually like explicitly ever stated before, but a lot of times when, when you're going up for faculty positions, um, these universities will offer you, uh, you know, some discounted tuition for your kids once they're college age. And I've often thought about, you know, it might even be more impactful if they offered you child care credits, mm -hmm. right? Um, so that as, you know, a young attending or faculty member, that is less of a stress and not even just faculty as a resident, as a fellow in training, right? If you were able, if, if that financial burden uh, was alleviated somehow um, or, you know, the institution or, you know, wherever you're working was able to help create a more family positive work environment. I do think it would, you know, help women uh, go into the field more. Yeah, I completely agree. That sounds like a really great idea for a resource um, that I think would benefit a lot of women in the field.
Um, but I want to ask you some questions about your experience with diversity in the field of cardiology and why it's so important and what experiences you had seeing it on a global scale. So when it comes to diversity in cardiology, it, it reflects you know, medicine in general, meaning that um, very few cardiologists are um, men and women of color. You know, I, I believe less than 5% um, of all cardiologists um, are African-American, and it's an even smaller statistic um, for the Latinx community. And then, you know, for representation uh, when it comes to Native Americans, it's abysmal. Um, so there is a ton of work that needs to be done within cardiology um, to diversify the field. In terms of gender, I think more women have come into cardiology over the past decade. It's still predominantly male. And especially, you know, cardiologists or cardiology has many subspecialties within it, such as electrophysiology, interventional cardiology. And you see for the very procedural subspecialties of cardiology, um, significant underrepresentation of women. Um, and I think there's a lot of work to be done to increase the number of women who go into these procedural um, subspecialties too. So uh, generally speaking, um, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And, you know, it's important for many reasons, having a, a diverse workforce in general just makes whatever institution um, stronger, right? And there's been a lot of research done on the corporate side, just showing a diverse workforce makes companies stronger. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they think outside of the box more, they're more innovative, um, they're more productive and they have better outcomes. And I think the same thing is true for healthcare. Um, and, you know, there have been a number of studies that have also shown that patient outcomes are better when you have a more diverse workforce, more diverse physicians um, for a number of reasons. It enhances cultural competence um, and it improves patient satisfaction also when they're able to see the physicians reflecting the communities that they come from. So I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done and there's a very strong case for continuing to try to diversify cardiology. What kind of awareness would you share about the way that different ethnic groups and different races may be more susceptible to certain cardiovascular diseases? Yeah, that's a good question. Generally speaking, uh, there are significant disparities in cardiovascular outcomes cardiovascular mortality specifically. So uh, cardiovascular mortality is higher among um, underrepresented minorities. Um, and there are a number of risk factors uh, that are drivers for these negative outcomes. Um, you know, one of them, a big one is hypertension. So high blood pressure um, is very common uh, in the African-American community. Um, and the rates in the African-American community are higher than any other uh, group um, in the United States. Um, you see similar trends when it comes to diabetes, which is also a significant uh, driver of cardiovascular morbidity and mortality. And you see higher rates, again, in the African-American community, um, the Latinx community, 
and very high rates also uh, within the Native American community. Um, and, and then, you know, due to environmental factors, um, you know, there's a whole field of environmental racism um, and, and just sort of structural barriers, that also increases the risk of cardiovascular disease. So what I mean by that is there have been a number of studies that have shown, you know, uh, neighborhoods or communities with higher rates of violence, just having high rates of violence in the community increased the uh, rate of cardiovascular disease and mortality. Um, food deserts, not having access to healthy foods, right? Because we know nutrition is extremely important when it comes to heart health. Having a neighborhood where you feel safe enough to walk or to exercise or there's a gym, right? All of those things are very important for heart health. But if you don't have those things in your community, you know, it's easy to understand why mortality and cardiovascular outcomes in those communities are much higher. Um, so I know, you know, the AHA is doing a lot of work trying to address also these environmental and broader societal um, issues that impact cardiovascular disparities. Um, and they've supported a number of initiatives such as uh, blood pressure screening and churches and barber shops um, to try to go into the community because that's another thing too. Um, there are healthcare access issues, right? Where people don't have access to care, they can't access care easily. Um, it's hard for them to get plugged in with a primary physician. We know there's a physician and healthcare shortage, generally speaking. Um, and so by going into uh, these communities that have disproportionately higher rates of cardiovascular mortality and uh, poor cardiovascular outcomes, you can make a significant change and impact in those outcomes. Um, and AHA has done a lot of work in regards to that and, and really pushing sort of community initiatives uh, to improve cardiovascular outcomes. I think those initiatives are so important to really shed light on this issue and bring more direct preventative treatment into those communities, like you said. You mentioned the barbershops, and I was wondering if you could talk about the CUT Hypertension program that you were a part of and what impact it made in the community. Yeah, so when I was a cardiology fellow, I was at the University of Pennsylvania, which is in West Philadelphia, and there was a student run initiative called cut hypertension and what the medical students were doing and again this just goes to show that you know you don't have to wait until you're an attending or a resident or have graduated even as a student uh, you can mobilize and start having an impact on your local community so the medical students started going into barber shops in west philadelphia and screening for blood pressure so they would take blood pressure cuffs there and they would screen the barbers and the clients and then also educate uh, the barbers um, and their clients um, about high blood pressure. And for those people who had high blood pressure, they would plug them into care. So try to get them set up with a primary care physician, either at Penn or elsewhere, uh, wherever you know, their insurance was accepted or what was most accessible to them. Um, and they had a significant impact you know, they found that, um, and then there's, you know, brought other studies that have also corroborated this, but high blood pressure seems to present at younger ages um, in the African-American community. So it wasn't uncommon for them to 
screen, you know, men in their 30s, 40s, and some even in their late 20s um, with high blood pressure. Um, and, you know, as we know, if you, if you leave high blood pressure untreated for a very long time, the consequences are pretty dire, right? So it can lead to brain disease, stroke, heart disease, kidney disease. So it's really important uh, to catch high blood pressure early and to um, plug people into care as early as possible. So I think cut hypertension was very effective in doing that. And so I participated as a mentor to some of the students and I would go into the barbershops also uh, to help with the program and got even more involved when the pandemic hit um, because then the shops and the businesses um, were very concerned, understandably so, about COVID-19 um, and COVID-19 mitigation strategies, how to keep themselves and their clients safe. And if we can remember back to that time, COVID-19 was disproportionately affecting minority communities, um, specifically Latinx and the African-American community. So many of the barbers that we worked with had family members pass away, friends sick in the hospital. So there was a lot of fear uh, and a lot of concern and a lot of questions. And so through working with uh, the local barbers and the students, we put together town halls to educate them on COVID-19, on the vaccine, address some um, misinformation that was spreading uh, throughout the community. And we were able to eventually get a lot of the uh, business owners to become vaccine ambassadors um, and refer their clients uh, for vaccination. Um, and it was really nice to see the university partner with the community in a way that probably wouldn't have happened if it weren't for COVID-19. So, you know, a lot of those barbers uh, and the barbershop owners ended up becoming community consultants and written into academic grants um, around COVID-19 and, and, you know, vaccination. Uh, and that was really nice to see uh, that partnership. So it was a really great experience uh, to work with cut hypertension. And now that I'm at Yale, I'm participating in a very similar uh, research program, uh, looking at the effectiveness of, again, implementing um, a blood pressure screening initiative in local barbershops and churches um, and having pharmacists uh, drive the titration of blood pressure medications for those who screen in. Like I said, just really going into the community and advocating for these individuals that may not know how to advocate for themselves. Having uh, these barbers be an ambassadors for COVID vaccines helped bring COVID vaccines into that community, um, especially since, you know, those were people that other members of the community were comfortable with and that they could trust. So in saying that, what are the benefits that having um, healthcare providers that reflect the demographics in the patient population, how does this increase trust between um, providers and patients? Yeah, I think first it uh, allows providers uh, to understand uh, and respect differences in patients' beliefs, values, and behaviors, right? So if you're from the community, you have an understanding of where some of the beliefs come from, where some of the fears come from. And you may also have a more intimate understanding of the barriers, right? So, 
you know, I think the classic example that's given is if you have, you know, a patient who misses appointments often or is late often, you know, you have no idea if they're taking two buses and a train to get there, if they have a sick parent or, you know, they're the primary caretaker, um, you know, for family members, right? So understanding the obstacles and barriers that people face on a daily basis, I think is really important. And if you come from that community, you just innately understand that because you've seen it and you come from it, right? So you have, I think, this empathy um, just from your own lived experience. Um, and, and a lot of times, I think it just comes down to giving people the benefit of the doubt, right? So if you're from a specific community, you're less likely to stereotype patients from that community just because you understand them, you understand where they're coming from, and you you know that most of the time it has to do with their environment and their context, less about them not caring about their own health or, you know, them not taking on the responsibility. A lot of times it's, you know, there's so much in their lives that's out of control um, that it may be hard for them uh, to engage in healthcare. So I think understanding that and not only as a physician focusing on the disease. So that's what happens a lot of times is like, okay, yeah, you have diabetes. Okay. Like increase your dose, but asking more questions about their family life, right? Where they live, how they live, who they live. All of that is so important when you're trying to get to an end goal of better health. Um, so I think, you know, as physicians, it's important to take sort of a more holistic approach to our patients. And I do think that physicians who come from marginalized communities just inherently and innately understand that because they've seen it and they come from that. Um, so it's not that it can't be learned, but I think if you come from that community, you just kind of almost do it automatically many times um, because, you know, your patients may remind you of like your grandma, right? <laughs> You're like, I've had patients like that where I'm like, oh, she's just like my grandma. Like, I, I know where she's coming from. I understand her, you know? Um, I think it also helps with communication. Um, and when you are able to communicate empathy, when you take your time, you show compassion, you show true caring towards the patient, that builds trust. And the way you do that is when you ask those contextual questions and not just focus on the disease that they have. When you see them and make them feel like a person, I think that really is what drives trust and builds that rapport. Um, and coming up with very personalized care plans for them. So when they're telling you about how they live and what obstacles and barriers they have, when, you, when they can sense that you're trying to work with them, you're tweaking your plan, you're trying to find things that are you know, conducive to their, their living environment, I think that also really builds trust. And it's sort of a team approach you're working with them instead of just barking at them. I think that also really helps. Yeah. And I think, you know, for them, oftentimes one thing that I've experienced because we're so underrepresented when patients from your community see you, it almost like reduces their anxiety a little bit. Um, it increases their satisfaction. And a lot of times, many times I've had patients actually tell me that they were proud of me. Just, you know, to see you 
make it, I think just makes them very happy, right? Because as rare as it is for you, it's even more rare for them. Like they never see, you know, physicians who look like them. So I think it could also be very affirming for them when they see physicians from their community. Perfect answer. I think you hit all of the points on why it's so important to have representation um, in healthcare providers for the patient demographic in different areas and especially minorities. A lot of people come into a healthcare setting already with anxiety and, you know, to lessen that anxiety to make them feel the most comfortable in an uncomfortable setting. I just want to thank you so much for giving me your time today and um, contributing to the wave of change that we're trying to make towards a goal of health equity and diversity in medicine. Um, so I just really appreciate you for coming here today and sharing your experiences and your perspective on the situation. Well, thank you again for the invitation. It was a pleasure speaking with you. I think this is going to be a fantastic series. Um, so I'm excited to okay, tune in. I'm so excited too. Um, thank you so much. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.